Father, we are so very grateful for your work in our lives. And like we have just sung, God, we are just overwhelmed with who you are and how you have revealed yourself to us, how you have made yourself known to us and begun this work in us, changing us, changing our, our hearts, changing us in the very ways that it is impossible for us to change ourselves. And we even had no recollection, no thought that we needed the change. And yet you have had mercy on us and poured out your grace upon us. We are so very grateful. And God, today, as we are about to hear your word preached and taught, God, we want to hear it, not just with our ears, but we want to hear it with our hearts. God, I ask that you would give us understanding of your word, that you'd give us wisdom of your word. Lord, I'm reminded of the scripture in Isaiah where it talks about bringing all our ashes um, and making that great exchange, the oil of joy for gladness, and just your good work again in our hearts. Lord, that we can come before you today in our sinful state, in our wrong motives, in our not rejoicing in all things, not giving thanks in all circumstances, all the things that we do every single day, not turning to you when we should. And Lord, we ask that you would forgive us, and Lord, that you would change us this morning, that we would become more and more like you in the ways that you call us to be. In our humility, in our wisdom, in our love and obedience to you. God, this morning we think about, it's on most of our minds, God, just the things in the world that are happening, the things that are our own personal struggles, our own personal afflictions, Lord, but we also have on our mind just what's happening in our world. And Lord, this morning we lift up the Christians in the Ukraine and the Christians in Russia. Lord, people that love and want to serve you and be obedient to you. Lord, we, we ask that you would sustain them, that you would meet their needs, that you would give them wisdom as they walk through such horrific times. Lord, we pray for uh, the Canadian young people that are going over to help support and to um, just do their part. Father, we, we ask that you would give them strength. Father, I ask that you would give them encounters with you, that they would call out to you. And Lord, that you would meet them. Father, we lift up those in our congregation, too, that are suffering, that are going through very difficult things. Lord, we thank you for your, um, your presence with them, your peace in the midst of struggle, your peace in the midst of a storm. And God, 
again, I ask that you would help us to rejoice always, that you would help us to pray without ceasing and look to you at all times. God, help us to be thankful in every circumstance that we face, for this is the will of God. This is your will for us in Christ Jesus, and we, are, we want that to be the reality of our lives. Thank you, God, again for your word this morning and for what you're going to do in us this morning. Amen. There's going to be on the overhead here, but many of you have got a Genesis Bible and notebook, and if not, there um, should be some Bibles in the pew there that you can follow along. We're in Genesis 38 this morning. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah went to Kezeb, where she bore him. Or Judah was in Kezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform a duty of, of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went in to his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat, <clears throat> sorry, sat at the entrance of Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her on the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you, will, that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. <clears throat> he said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, 
and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judas sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Anam at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So we returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we will be laughed at. You see, I sent the young goat and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb, and when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was Zerah. God, may you add understanding to your word. Good morning. We've uh, got some interesting subject matter this morning. If you're visiting with us, we work through books of the Bible, so we don't miss any part. It's all the word of God, and it is all useful to our growth as God confronts us, rebukes us, trains us in righteousness. And I thought, hey, we are on the first day of spring break. Hardly anyone's going to be there. Perfect. Uh, thank you for coming. Uh, at first look, Genesis 38 looks like a very strange and troubling interruption to the Joseph story. I'm pretty much willing to bet that your illustrated storybook Bible doesn't have this scene. Um, this chapter fits into the Joseph narrative, first as, as a sort of a montage. You know how, like in the movies, uh, the theme song plays, it's, you know, Eye of the Tiger, and then the hero or heroes go from being weak and untrained, and through the course of the song, they're like training or building something, and by the time the song is over, everything has changed, and they are elite and trained, or whatever they're doing is accomplished. Uh, the Rocky movies turned this into a meme. The intermission is, is placed here after Joseph is sold by his brothers to a passing caravan to help us to perceive the passing of time, the years of slavery, 13 years that Joseph will endure before his exaltation in Pharaoh's service. It also serves the Joseph narrative by way of comparison. So it fits right into the story. Even though it seems like it's going way off uh, the beaten path here, it fits right in by way of comparison. The chapter tells us that Judah went down from his brothers about the same time that Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. 
in chapter 29. And it also contrasts Judah with Joseph and Judah's seduction by Tamar with chaste Joseph, who will resist the seductive advances of Potiphar's wife. In both scenes, the woman retains tokens of the man to produce condemning evidence, and both women deceive by the use of a garment. What is amazing is that while Judah is ultimately blessed and his family is expanded through his failure, the result of Joseph's wise obedience is that he ends up in a dungeon, and all according to the providence of God. And so this scene sets up the entire Joseph story. Joseph is God's wise and obedient servant who suffers for the sake of his brothers. Judah, the new Israelite leader, is a sexually immoral sinner in desperate need of someone to save him. And and this makes this chapter essential to understanding the Joseph narrative. And it really is one of the best prodigal son stories in the entire Bible. In fact, the the prodigal son uh, parable that Jesus tells is is pointing out the wickedness of the older brother. Here we just see everything that sometimes people flesh out in that parable actually on the pages of Scripture. And so we'll move through this verse by verse. I wasn't going to, but I think we have time. Verse 1, it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shalah. Judah was in Kazib when she bore him. Now, all through Genesis, we see God has chosen a people for himself. He's making a people for himself. First, the family of Abraham, then the tribe of Jacob, and then the nation of Israel. And the primary threat to Israel's family is oftentimes brought about by the people themselves. And here it is exactly the case. It's brought about by Judah's rebellion. Intermarriage was the very thing that Abraham and Isaac feared for their sons. And it is what contributed to the rejection of Esau by God. Abraham, Genesis 24, 3, made his servants swear to not take a wife for his son from the daughters of the Canaanites. And Isaac commanded Jacob, Genesis 28, 1, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. God repeatedly warned the Israelites that intermarriage with the Canaanites would lead to assimilation. And so Judah's foolish disobedience and then his subsequent unrighteous acts create the plot tension in this chapter. Like the prodigal son of Luke 15, Judah leaves his father and brothers behind. He befriends all the wrong sorts of people, specifically Hira the Adulamite, and then is enticed by the women of the land. When he sees the daughter of Shua, who's never named, he saw her and took her, which is the normal word for getting married in those days. He took her meant she became his wife. But saw and took are expressions we've seen used in tandem already four times in Genesis to describe lust. Starting with Eve, seeing and taking the forbidden fruit. This is what happened to Dinah. Uh, uh, Shechem saw her and took her. And so now this is what Judah is doing. Seeing and taking according to what he desires. 
And so where Judah's grandfather Isaac was known for his inordinate love for food and his father Jacob for his covetousness in general, Judah is described as a man enslaved by sexual desire. And we see this in two cases here in this story. Verse 6, And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Anon, Go in to your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Anon knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went in to his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house. Tell Shalah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. And so the second main character comes into focus here. And with her comes a secondary tension. We have the threat of intermarriage with the Canaanites. But we have another secondary tension, which is, is very common in the Genesis stories, which is this childlessness. And, and compounding this distressing issue of childlessness is that Tamar is now a widow in a family which wickedly abuses her, both sexually and economically. Uh, Tamar, along with Ruth, is one of the most misunderstood persons in the Bible. In fact, most people, I would say by and large, don't understand the story of Ruth. They read it, they think there's this wonderful romance between Ruth and Boaz. It's, it's not the story at all. We have to actually come to understand, uh, to understand these women, we have to understand the custom of leveret marriage. So we have significant cultural differences, obviously, with what's happening here. And so uh, according to this custom that we're going to acquaint ourselves with, it, it, which was later incorporated into the law of God in Deuteronomy 25, and, and even existed as an institution into Jesus' day, if a man died without children, his brother or nearest relative would marry his widow for the purpose of having a child who would carry on the family name of the deceased and who would inherit his property. And so this was a way of ensuring that nobody's line in Israel was wiped out. Even if you died without children, your nearest relative would then take your wife, impregnate her, and that, that child would be your own heir. And so lever is the Latin term for a woman's husband's brother. Uh, but this custom, leveret marriage, was not limited to a brother-in-law as we see in the book of Ruth, when another of her husband's relatives, Boaz, fulfills this duty. And in pre-existing laws that, that come before the Old Testament that stipulated that if a husband has no living brothers, she is then to marry his father. So Judah chose his own wives, Canaanite wives, but he chose Tamar as a wife for his eldest son. The text blanks on her lineage. But the Bible never says that she is a Canaanite. People have often said that there's this Canaanite in Jesus' line. But remember, intermarriage with the Canaanites is exactly what is expressly forbidden and what God has warned Israel that will not work out for them. And so she is not listed as a Canaanite. If she was one of Judah's nieces, the Bible would probably tell us. So she may have been the daughter of servants Jacob had brought with him from Padan Aram. 
or even if Tamar had come from Canaanite descent, the message of this chapter insists that she was now an Israelite committed to the covenant family in a way that Judah and his sons were not. Her first husband, Ur, has the distinction of being the first wicked person to be explicitly put to death by the hand of God. And because he dies before Tamar can bear him an heir, she experiences her first leveret relationship. Now, there is no mention at all of a marriage, but Judah commands his second son, Anan, to perform the duty of a husband so that the line of Ur would continue through his widow. But, but Onan was crafty, and uh, he realized that as the firstborn, Er was entitled to a greater inheritance and the birthright of the eldest. And if he had no offspring, then all of that birthright and the entire inheritance would transfer to Onan, unless Tamar bears a son by the family, which would then be considered Er's heir. And so Onan did not want to father a son, who would prevent him from receiving his brother's inheritance, but he was willing to use the custom to have Tamar. He took advantage of the Leverett law for his own sexual pleasure. And not just once. The syntax doesn't refer to when Onan had sex with Tamar, but whenever he had sex with her, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And so, Onan abused Tamar's family loyalty for his own sensuality. But this did not escape Yahweh's notice, verse 10. What he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. So, still barren, and with two dead husbands, Tamar's reputation is now marred. Judah tells her to remain a widow in her father's house until Shelah grows up, but his thoughts reveal that this is actually a lie. He has no intention of giving his youngest son to her. He believes that she is cursed, superstitiously thinking that Tamar is the reason, not God's judgment, that his sons have died, and he fears then to lose his youngest son as well. And so Tamar experiences the loss of her husband, the abuse of her brother-in-law, and then is also abused by her father-in-law when he deceives her and then denies her status in the family. Judah fails to care for her well-being, but, as we will see, still retains authority over her. Verse 12, in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she shook or took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? 
She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. And so uh, to understand then in the cultural setting, Tamar, according to the law, had the right to be the mother of Judah's heir. Judah had robbed her of that opportunity and had deceived her into leaving him alone in the meantime, and so left as a barren widow by the one who should have taken responsibility, Tamar was was left to her own quite capable devices and the providence of God. The narrator is quick to point out that Judah's wife had died and that he was past the time of grieving. uh, Tamar was not a homewrecker or an adulteress, uh, a crime that was punishable by death in that culture. By this time, it had also become clear that Judah had deceived her, for Shelah had grown up and she had not been married to him. Most likely, he had been married to another woman by this time, though the text does not say. But at the opportune time, after the passing of Judah's wife and at the time of the sheep-shearing festival when people were celebrating and drinking, uh, Tamar positioned herself in a garment and at a place where she could be perceived as a prostitute. Now, obviously, she's worked out the timing of her own biology as well. And for those of you that like watching legal proceedings, uh, notice that there is no entrapment here. Judah takes all of the initiative. He comes to her saying, essentially, let me have sex with you. To which she replies, what will you give me? might not be that this is the usual answer because Judah then offers her an exorbitant fee. Perhaps unsure of who exactly he has propositioned, maybe he's made a mistake, and so he essentially makes an offer he thinks she can't refuse. It's many times the price of a prostitute, which is found in Proverbs 6.26, a loaf of bread. He offers her a young goat, which is like hundreds of times the value. And so... If you've been following along with us in Genesis, this is now the third time that a deception has been successfully borne out with a cloak and a goat. In in the last scene, Judah and his brothers deceived Jacob, their father, with Joseph's robe and the blood of a goat. Just as Jacob had deceived his father with the garment of his brother and a young goat. See how this is coming into play? This is yet another occasion of talionic justice, which is where the punishment is the exact fit for the crime. People receiving exactly what they had done to others, reaping what you sow. This is talionic justice. And whenever we see this, it's not that God always punishes or disciplines in this way, but this is God making it clear that despite the fact that he consistently uses all of Judah's sins to work out good, they still have terrible consequences. And God is still in His love disciplining His chosen people. And so it's not as though His choices and His sins don't matter, even if God is ultimately working it out for good. Whereas it was Judah who made the extravagant offer, Tamar then demands an exorbitant pledge when he doesn't exactly have it on him. And before he gets what he wants from her, she requires his seal and its cord along with the staff that he carries. Prominent men in that day would wear a small ornamented cylindrical seal made of stone or metal and worn on a cord around their neck. And it could then be taken off and rolled across soft clay or like wax to make an impression, much like an official seal today. 
A man's staff, likewise, a symbol of his authority, has his mark of ownership etched on the top of it. And so you can see here this example of how a foolish man might act when caught in the trap of lust. When by the end of their encounter, Tamar holds in her possession the symbols of his individual and corporate identity. Verse 20. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who is at Anam at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the man of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. You can see that Judah entrusts quite a lot to his Canaanite friend, Hira. And when the, the payment can't be made and his identifying markers cannot be regained quietly, Judah's main concern here is that he not become the butt of jokes and laughed at. <laughs> Judah is like a businessman who has unwittingly lost his company credit card in a brothel. At this point, it's, it's just his reputation that he wishes to maintain. Verse 24, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shalah. And he did not know her again. And so, as his daughter-in-law in that culture, Tamar was still under Judah's authority, despite the fact that he had not held up his responsibility for her. She would still be expected, in this case, to remain chaste and to maintain the family's honor. And so because Judah already suspects Tamar of being a curse on his family, he is happy to get rid of her, and he leaps at the hearsay evidence to be rid of this bothersome daughter-in-law for good. And so this third scene adds hypocrisy to Judah's growing list of sins, along with his lack of covenant faithfulness, lack of integrity, and sexual immorality. He condemns her to be burned to death until it was proven by the seal and the staff that he was the guilty party. And then rather than to include himself in the punishment, he, he simply exonerated her. Obviously, he judges uh, Tamar's seemingly adulterous actions on a very different scale than his own. See, when he thinks she is the one who has committed adultery, which according to the law she had not, he has, is willing to kill her painfully. But now it's revealed that he is the one who has actually committed adultery, even while she is innocent. Tamar, it seemed, had committed the kinds of sin that religious people love to condemn, illicit sex, deception, and impugning the honor of a good family. And while he was unaware of his own involvement, Judah was quick to condemn, despite all of his own failures to keep his responsibilities to the girl. But upon presentation of his own guilt, 
Judah's confession, which is better translated, she is righteous, not I. He's like King David when he's caught committing adultery with Bathsheba. Judah owned up to his sin, confessing his lack of righteousness. This statement is so important because it shows that God brought Judah to understand his unrighteousness and desperate need for a Savior. And this is, again, how this sets up the whole story of Joseph. Who's going to save wicked Judah, who now recognizes that he is unrighteous? The statement also vindicates Tamar, that she is totally justified in taking matters into her own hands, doing nothing at all that the law did not entitle her to. It was her right, according to the law, to sleep with Judah. Men who were supposed to be righteous Israelites had been unfaithful to her, irresponsible and abusive and far too Canaanite in their ways. And so like Ruth, Tamar is characterized by covenant loyalty to her deceased husband. How shocking is that, hey? Once we understand the culture and the laws and the rules of that time, now, of course, we can't judge her by Christian ethics because in her culture at that time, her actions, though very dangerous for her, were within the law. But she doesn't go and marry a Canaanite or someone else outside the family, but she remained faithful to the covenant people and was determined that the chosen family line would continue through her. And so, uh, she tries to raise up an offspring for her deceased husband, who she has this covenant loyalty to, as a good wife should in this day. And she lures Judah into what was for him an immoral union with a prostitute, but for her was a daring risk to obtain what was her right and her family responsibility by having a child by the nearest kin of her husband. So, Tamar is actually the heroine of the scene. And accordingly, in the book of Ruth, Ruth 4.12, when the elders bless the marriage of Boaz and Ruth, they pray that God would make Ruth like Tamar. Why don't we do this today? (laughs) May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. And so, nowhere else in Scripture is Tamar put down or reduced, but she is elevated. By the end, Tamar is part of both the discipline and the rescue that God provides to Judah's family. Isn't that amazing? Verse 27, when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterwards, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Now, we should see here that if it had been left up to Judah, the family would have assimilated with the Canaanites. But through providential deletion, subtraction, I should say, uh, but, uh, and through Tamar, the line was retrieved and, and Tamar served as a corrective to God's people. Through her, God restored sons to Jacob, but this time they would be Israelites. Israelites. 
not Canaanites. There's a, a remarkable similarity then between the births of Perez and Zerah and of Jacob and Esau. Both involve twins. In both, the younger thrusts the head of the elder and displaces him. And in both, the one who is naturally expected to get the birthright but loses it is associated with red, red stew in the case of Esau and a red string in the case of Zerah. And so Perez is then like his grandfather Jacob, the one who strives and prevails. The purpose of this similarity at the end of this encounter is to show that God had chosen Judah and his offspring, which would include both King David and, according to his human nature, Israel's eternal king, Jesus of Nazareth. And so the book of Ruth concludes, chapter 4, verse 18 to 22, with a genealogy of 10 generations from Perez to David, both who were selected by God over their older siblings and elevated to lead, the, lead in Israel. And even Matthew chapter 1 includes Tamar as one of four women listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, in the introduction, I said that this is the ultimate prodigal son story, and I, I really believe that it is. In comparison with Esau and others we've seen rejected by God in Genesis, even in comparison with his three older brothers, Reuben, I can't name them all now off the top of my head, his three older brothers that God has already passed over for leadership, Judah has done everything possible to disqualify himself. He's the first among Israel to be like, no, I'm going in to marry with the Canaanites, exactly what God has commanded them not to do. If you look at this, it's not just that he's sinned in some small ways or that he's been a little bit foolish. He's disqualified himself in every way. Who would, of the brothers now would you choose to lead in Israel? Well, Judah would be the very last. Reuben was disqualified for one sexual encounter. His brothers for just a little bit of murder. Judah has done... <laughs> All of these things. Yet God preserved him and his royal tribe. Quick list. He conspired to commit murder against his own brother, a crime which called for the death penalty. He kidnapped him, which again is another capital offense in Israel. He engaged in trading his brother as a slave again. He intermarried with the Canaanites against the express command of God. And then he practices blatant sexual immorality engaging a prostitute. That's not to mention all of his failures as a father and father-in-law, raising two sons whom God judged as wicked. That one like this would have his name written on the gates of heavenly Jerusalem, Revelation 21.12, is mind-boggling. He stands as a witness of God's amazing grace, which calls even the worst sorts of sinners into adoption as sons. 1 Timothy 1.15, which is true, whichever of God's people reads it. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. You see, one of the things that we don't see in the prodigal son parable, because it's not about this, is the way in which God brings him back. It's not the choice of the prodigal son. Even the fact that the prodigal son is there and realizes things aren't working out for him there, this is the grace and providence of our God. Those who do not have this 
covenant faithfulness expressed to them by God are happy to go off and do their thing. They, they don't come back. But Judah is called by God for God's purposes, and therefore God uh, determined uh, to bring him back to himself. Judah was on the definition of the wrong path until God sent him a determined daughter-in-law with too much chutzpah to be sent out to pasture. And through the messiness of a a broken family, marred by parental favoritism, sexual abuse, and unfaithfulness, through the tragic loss of his Canaanite wife and sons, despite and even through the sexual immorality that characterizes his life, even despite all his choices to the contrary, God called Judah back to himself, for he was chosen for God's purposes." So Judah, I, I think, I, I didn't realize this before st- ha- being forced to study this passage, but he's the ultimate prodigal son in the Bible. The narrative moves on to Joseph after this again, but when we next come across Judah, he is back among God's people. It, it kind of blanks on how this happens, but here he's off living with the Canaanites, intermarried with the Canaanites, and through this correction and through this recognition that he is unrighteous, all of a sudden he's back among God's people, And then he's chosen by Jacob to lead, and he leads his brothers back to, or in in the migration into Egypt, and he will receive the blessing of kingship, which was originally given to his father, grandfather, and great-grandfather before him, Genesis 49.10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. I think it's kind of ironic that it says he's not going to lose his staff again. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. But his faith journey began here, with the confession of his unrighteousness in his treatment of Tamar, and later in Genesis 42, 21, when he confesses his sin against Joseph, he says, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. The pinnacle expression of Judah's new faith is in chapter 44, 33, when this once callous slave trader offers himself as a slave in the place of his youngest half-brother. In the meantime, as the focus moves back to Joseph, we will see God's plan at work to save foolish and sinful Judah through his wise and obedient brother, who suffers for doing what is right according to the plan of God. And we too, through the spirit of adoption, have a wise and righteous brother who was obedient to the point of suffering to death on a cross on our behalf. And that is why we have gathered this morning to come together to worship Him and to remember and rely on the finished work of Christ Jesus, who was obedient when we should have been who was wise when we were foolish. And we are the brothers, like Judah, who was so dumb, so bad, the worst. And God works it all out to bless him, increase him, and hold him fast. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wonders of your word that you have given to us. We ask now that your Holy Spirit would give us illumination 
that we would see all the troubles of our lives as serving your purpose, that we would see your steadfast faithfulness to us who have drawn us to this place despite our rebellion, despite all the wrong paths that we've gone down, despite the fact that we have shook our fists in your face. What a faithfulness. What a love that will not relent when we have wholly turned from you. God, may we not each have to learn according to our own actions, but apply this to us so we can learn from the life of Judah without following him and his mistakes. And that we might learn from and follow your perfect son, Jesus, who suffered for the sake of others, suffered for doing what is right in order to bring glory to you and that many others would come to salvation. As your church, we pray that you would draw us into this work, put us on mission as we seek to accomplish the commission you have given to each of your disciples to go and share the good news of what you have given to us, that each of us, like beggars who have found a place to receive bread, would share the goodness that we have received from you, even as we remember you by coming to this table this morning. Glorify yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.